1: Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate Rewind and Rewatch Episode 15 covering United Philly from the ECW Arena in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on January 29th, 2011. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast feed on all podcast platforms and applications or on our dedicated Open the Voice Gate RSS feed. We're on Twitter at OpenVoiceGate. I'm one of your hosts, it's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and friend, Case Slow. and Case. We have already crossed, like, a big threshold here. We are on episode 15. We definitely are approaching the halfway point of the lifespan of DGUSA, and at this point, things aren't as dire as I thought I would be at this point in the promotion.
2: I'm thoroughly enjoying almost every Drag-It USA show we've watched thus far. I think the two shows at the end of 2010, Bushido Code of the Warrior, and Freedom Fight, had high points, but were overall weak shows. But I've really enjoyed everything else. I mean, the Canada weekend was weird, but the Canada weekend was fun in a in another way, too. I I don't know. I the narrative has always been, you know, after you know the first three shows, things really die off and it's just not the same. And granted and we'll talk about it a little bit on this episode, but more so on the next one, attendance is really struggling for these shows. But I look back at them, and granted, we now have 10 years of hindsight where we're able to say, okay, Johnny Gargano and Chuck Taylor and Ricochet, they became stars, they became big deals. And they're, you know, w- there was no way of knowing that in 2011. But I look at these shows on paper and then the match quality, you know, the fact that they deliver, I don't know how this company wasn't drawing bigger gates. These shows are really, really good. And at this point, to in my opinion, and you might disagree, Dave Meltzer disagrees a little bit in the Wrestling Observer newsletters that we're reading from this time period. But to me, these feel like authentic Dragon Gate shows that now have a a separate identity with Americans on the show, but it feels like Americans infiltrating a Dragon Gate show and not an American indie with Dragon Gate guys on it.
1: I think it's something that, at least in 2011, when we're talking about, you still have people that were either Dragon Gate Trueborns or you have people that would soon be in Dragon Gate for a a duration. I mean, with the exception of, really, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the freestyle match, there's Dragon Gate-affiliated people and people that have left their mark in Dragon Gate on every single match on the show. So it does, like, the infiltration I do agree with. It, I've kind of come to a conclusion, It was a conclusion I, I had a little bit in my head, but I did was expecting, like, the show quality to drop a little bit quicker here. It just seems that, at least as of this show, it was environmental and costs of everything. We're still in, like, the post-Great Recession the indies weren't in a great place and launching a show like this that had a lot of overhead even though we've seen how in the first 18 months promotion case the business model has drastically changed and maybe it's that the business model didn't change fast enough or that it was ahead of time we know that famous gabe Sapolsky quote that dragon gate was doing matches 10 years ahead of time and maybe this is a promotion that if it came along in 20 if it started in 2018 or 2019 it would it would have had a, a lot more fond memory, but of course we would have recency bias in that case. But it's interesting. I, this was a show that I felt like, I think I came out of the show liking the show a little bit more than the one the night before. Of course, this is the second night of the United Weekend, which is the first ever triple shot in DGUSA history as they are crowding the first Open the United Gate champions. We broke up how we were doing a timeline because there was such a, a lot amount of stuff to talk about. So last time we mainly focused on big things that were happening in Japan and things that got us to specifically the New York City debut. But we're going to change gears a little bit this time, Case, and we're going to talk about the overall environment of what was happening in America.
2: Indeed we are. Before we do that, there's just a few brief Dragon Gate USA notes that need to be tended to. And the first uh, one of those comes on the January 14th Newswire when it is announced that Shima is one of the official head trainers for the January 29th, the uh, DG, DG USA United Philly show, the January 29th seminar tryout in Philadelphia. This was obviously open to all wrestlers, and that means you get to get in the ring with one of Dragon Gate's most important figures. And it should be noted also on January 14th, A.R. Fox is announced to make his Drangate USA debut. He was originally put in the bonus match, but as we will talk about later on, he was elevated to the main card. And then there was also this, Mike, from the Drangate USA website, a post called Featured Articles Chapter One, Changes in Drangate USA Business. and. And I want to read all of this, okay? and then you can get your thoughts on – or give your thoughts on how much of this stuff matters, how much of this have we – I guess will go on to affect the company. But there's just – to contextualize this and to put us in a 2011 state of mind, I think it's important to read this when Gabe says 2011 – or I'm sorry, let me try that again – 2010 – was a year of growth and development for Drangate USA. Now the dividends will pay off going into 2011. In fact, they have already started. Here are some of the things that have happened in recent months or are just being finalized now. This is only a start. And then he goes on to list several key American talents were signed to contracts to ensure Drangate USA can build around these individuals. The addition of POC as a regular member of the roster in 2011, American talent touring Drangate in Japan, to help them improve and grow, breaking into the Manhattan market with a great building and partnership, which was BB Kings, which happened on the prior show that we talked about, Dragon Gate USA heading southbound for shows in North Carolina and Atlanta on WrestleMania weekend, we'll talk about those in upcoming weeks, this note I found to be particularly interesting, we have frozen ticket prices, there will be no ticket price increase in 2011. And on top of that, the number of live events in 2011 will slightly increase. This has already been evident by the fact that DGUSA has had six shows through April of 2011 compared to only three in 2010. DGUSA will continue to be the first major stage for new talent, many of whom have been discovered. Through our seminars and tryouts, we have hired new video editors to put out better quality, more cutting-edge videos. No, you have not, Gabe. We have (laughs) hired a new gear designer to give you more stylish shirts, hats, and other items. And then there's this note that we haven't hit a point where this is relevant yet, but as we approach, I, I think especially the end of 2011 onwards, we're going to be talking a lot about DVDs And the DVD release dates. So Gabe has this note where he says, you can pre-order the DVDs of Untouchable and Way of the Ronin in the DGUSA.TV store. So this is January 2011, and we're talking about pre-ordering shows from September 2010. Gabe goes on to say, you have probably noticed that they are not double DVD sets. Our show DVDs going forward will be single DVDs, and that is essentially because the cost... Of doing the double DVD sets, which for the first year, all of the GG USA DVDs are these double pack uh, discs with the main show and then a bonus disc. And it comes down to a cost issue. It comes down to the fact that producing that second disc was taking uh, so much longer for the DVDs to get produced. And then there's also a note where Gabe says, we are unable to obtain more footage from Japan and have almost depleted our current library. We aren't going to give you a bonus disc, a filler. When you see a DGUSA logo on a DVD, you know it's quality from start to finish. So Mike, I just threw a lot of information at you. Big picture, what do you think
1: about this essay that Gabe wrote? Well, the things I always felt about these essays, and Gabe would do this a lot, like pretty much through what we believe is the end of evolve about once a year, once 18 months, Gabe had the idea that he wanted to have his version of transparency. And I think this is, I I think it's fair to say that this is an instance of that case where he's, he's, he's telling the truth, but not necessarily like the total truth. And there's some things that as outside observers and as people who are never going to get, see the books, you either have to decide if Gabe is telling the truth here if he's bending the truth to be a little bit more uh, benevolent or useful for his sake, or if he's outright kind of uh, just saying something and making something up. So the big, to me, like, hearing the thing and hearing about the, the pay, just taking this one like, backwards and talking about the DVDs first, um, I totally believe him that Geora was not releasing all this footage and you had the time where it was originally Mike Quackenbush and then it just became... It was Mike Craig Bush and Lenny Leonard. Then just became Lenny Leonard where they would do English commentary over some matches. And you have, like, the bonus disc. And there is the cost there because when you say, like, this was, like, special DVD cases, like, they actually had, like, the... If you order or, at the time, got, like, a 2 DVD set, but it was still, like, the thin case. It wasn't, like, the big bulky plastic one. Costs are more expensive there. The DVDs aren't the DVDRs that you would get from SmartMark Video or from like a tape trader. So like there was level quality there that I entirely believe him about. I think the bigger thing there is that the way they gave up things leading up to it makes me think, oh, not only is he not getting footage, he also is going to cut out the whole bonus card thing because he would be bringing people in there for three matches for a couple hundred people that paid for first and second row seats. And given how attendance woes are and the fact that originally this was just going to be running six times a year, six shows, and now they're running triple shots in... Gabe's pr- and Gabe spends it that he's proud about this. Let's call it a spade a spade here, in okay? case so we spent some time talking about this beforehand. Attendance was getting very troublesome already in the promotion, and it's, a lo- and it's a lot cheaper, and Dave Meltzer would report earlier that they would need 500 on one show to break even, or it would be 700 across two shows. Now you're dealing with three shows, and that tells me that they, it, they're trying to find ways to cut costs and that's why you ran more shows in smaller venues. Did talk with someone before between recording the last episode and this episode. BB Kings was only about 550 people. So about the size of what they were drawing in Chicago there for New York City, for New York City Times Square prices. A lot of this here, in my opinion, was him trying to find ways to cut costs and to try to make it a little bit more of a health a healthier promotion and i think some of that also is moving away from the g funk pay-per-view model for the big weekends now you could just say okay the show happened we were going to have this on a pay-per-view first on go fight live then our own platform but it'll be out on dvd soon and you could offer like if you pay us 20 bucks now we'll give you the dvd when it's done and that's them getting money faster
2: yeah that is something i don't know when it is implemented because this show was on go fight live. We'll talk about when they hit the Southern triple shot that they move over to WWN. I don't know when WWN began their three tier price model for ipay per views of for I think it was 14 99. You can get the ipay pay-per-view for 24 99. You get the ipay pay-per-view and the replay, which was such a rip off. And then I think it was 34 99 for the ipay per view the replay and, and then the DVD of the show, which again we'll be talking more about DVDs because it affected Dragon Gate USA's business and what I think was a real way, as we go forward. But yeah, anything to get a little bit more money—that's uh, what Gabe was going for there, and he's a promoter, so I can't entirely blame him.
1: Yeah, and talking about like the seminars here, each person that walks in the seminars is paying paying a chunk of cash for the seminar, so that's more money in the pocket, and the whole like three tier system was absolutely ludicrous and you know he was able to make it work because he was the only person who had his own platform at that time dg usa luckily got off go fight live for better for worse and got onto their own platform very quickly which had a lot of its own issues that we'll get into as we look at reports of this but he's trying to find money where he can because as we've talked about and i've made a point of pointing out attendances when we've been able to get them nothing has had like the same attendance from the first weekend the first run of shows even the wrestlemania shows so it's becoming a very expensive proposition and i think it's it's considered kind of like i don't know if there's ever anyone going on the record dragon gate was helping out like on plane tickets on a visas so th- he was trying to find ways to be able to, to afford these flights because you look at this weekend of shows you had amada flying in from japan you had a, a, a characters that was based in the States. So you looked out there, but then you had BB Hulk flying in Japan, CK one flying in from Japan. And then the main event ricochets over in dragon gate full time. You're flying him in from Japan as well. So we're talking about four, six, seven, eight, eight transcontinental plane tickets. That's a lot That's of brutal. money. That's a lot of money when you're only drawing about, and I think it's fair to say about, under 1,400 people for this three shot.
2: Yeah, it's not good. As we look at the larger independent landscape, there's one quick note from the February 14th Wrestling Observer, but we'll read it here now because we're doing the rest of the U.S. Indies where Dave says that Gate USA attempted to book Kevin Steen and Tommaso Ciampa for this weekend. Steen said that ROH told him not to work the show, even though they hadn't given him a return date after he dropped the Loser Leaves Town match at Final Battle 2010. Ciampa, who has also worked for ROH, didn't want to work the pre-show and said he was told not to do a job on a Drangate show. So there's two talents there that Gabe could have had his hands on for this weekend, maybe drawn a few more tickets, but unfortunately... He was not able to do so. But Mike, I've got five independent wrestling shows from you, for you from January 2011 that all pertain either Drangate USA guys or Drangate USA alumni, and I would like to read those cards for you now. All right, Leia, let's get into it. We start off with a promotion that I don't think we've talked about at all yet, CZW Combat Zone Wrestling. They... Uh, Also hosted a show from the ECW arena, the Asylum Arena at this time, on January 7th, my brother's birthday, January 7th, 2011, the show from Small Beginnings Come Great Things, with a show that featured A.R. Fox, who we'll talk about later, A.R. Fox against Orange Cassidy. Gran Kuma versus Jonathan Gresham, Devin Moore versus 13, Alex Cologne versus Dragon Gate USA superstar Sammy Callahan, Joe Gacy and Ryan Slater versus Rich Swan and Ryan McBride, Adam Cole defending the CZW junior heavyweight title against Ruckus, Black G's and Joker, Philly's Most Wanted went to a no contest with the Briscoe brothers for the CZW tag team titles. And in the main event of that show, John Moxley, defends the CZW World Heavyweight title against the Blood Warriors' own Brody Lee. Mike, were you watching a lot of CZW in 2011? No, I was not.
1: (laughs) Nor was I. No, no, no. I I could safely say I never watched this card. And I I didn't know this this was happening because this was a time where Moxley and Calhan were very close. They both were Southern Ohio guys, and they... Were the Switchblade Conspiracy? I think was their yes their name yeah. there. Yeah, Switchblade Conspiracy. So, yeah, like I was cognizant of this going on. Of course, this is when CZW was at a different place in its lifespan. Weird thing, CZW is still ticking, and DGUSA will be dead within three years of the show. It kills me inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, yeah, no. I I knew that show happened. I knew of who was champions there, but never had an inclination to even seek it out.
2: Ring of Honor on January 14th, 2011. This is ROH Champions versus All-Stars on a show that features Christopher Daniels against Roderick Strong. Andy Right Leg Ridge and Grizzly Redwood defeating the Bravado Brothers. That match screams 2011. (laughs) Mike Bennett defeating Adam Cole. Drangate USA's Homicide on these shows. He defeats Rhett Titus. Steve Carino defeats Caleb Conley. Colt Cabana defeats Caprice Coleman. The semi-main event of this show, and I said earlier that the the Andy Origin Grizzly Redwood match Scream 2011, this in the semi-main event feels so dated, despite the fact that one of these guys has gone on to have an incredible career, and the other one is Kenny King. Semi-main event of this show, Kenny King defeats Kyle O'Reilly, and in the main event, Wow. An eight-man tag. Yeah, I know. It's it's unbelievable. Eight-man tag main event. Davey Richards, El Generico, and the Briscoes defeat. Christopher Daniels, Roderick Strong, and the Kings of Wrestling. Mike, does this show ring any bells for you?
1: I remember it happening. This was not a time I was really actively watching a lot of Ring of Honor, especially after, like, Final Battle. I remember the first time I watched the uh, Loser leaves Town match, but everything, like, past that point, like, Steen was such a big draw and such an interesting character here. This was, like, like one of their early shows, and you know this is still—they just finished up on HDNet, and they're in the weird place before they were bought by Sinclair when Gary Sil—when Gary Sillkin sells the show. So, you—you you know, I know the show happened, but this was not a show I watched. I remember watching. I certainly did not watch Keaton King, King versus Kyle O'Reilly.
2: Semi-main event, unbelievable that happened. Well, Mike, they ran a double shot the next night in Charlotte, North Carolina, January fifteenth, two thousand eleven. Only the strong survive. I had this DVD laying in my room. I don't know why I had this show on DVD. I don't remember buying it, but I knew I had it laying around. So I watched part of this show today. I will tell you right now, I did not watch the the Bravados versus Future Shock, which opened up the show. Uh, Rhett Titus versus Caprice Coleman. Colt Cabana versus Grizzly Redwood. Mike Bennett versus Cedric Alexander. Those all got skipped as well. There was a TV title match. Christopher Daniels defeated Claudio Castagnoli. I did not watch that, but I probably should have Uh, Andy Ridge and Steve Carino teamed up and they defeated Alabama attitude of Corey Hollis and Mike Posey, a team that ring of honor, I think used as extra talent for like six years in a row and they were always really good and ROH never signed them. And it really bothered me. Yeah.
1: Corey Hollis is a guy that's been around for a long time. Like he he had a team with a, I think who also is he was he did a bunch of WWE stints. He was based in Georgia for a long time, and he was just around the Carolinas for a long time. And he was always kind of teaming with either like Mike Posey There's a while when John Schuyler would team with him, and they become the weights yeah. And they just kind of like existed. And he always was someone that was solid. And I never like, especially like given how things are going, like he had a team with Adam Page. Like yeah, that's right. I think
2: they worked a lot of PWX pro wrestling experience together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So like, he's a guy that's been around for so long. Like he was, he was nominated for the PWI rookie of the year 2010. And uh, it's just something that like, I know like Alabama is no, like if you're driving in from Alabama, that's a shoot. That's not an easy thing to be doing on a constant basis. And he was on, he was on an episode of AEW dark when they've been taping in Jacksonville, Florida. So like, he's a guy that's been around. I'm like looking at his cage match now. Cause it's what we do at parts of the show. He's <laughs> still working North Georgia and in, in the Carolinas. I'm surprised, like just still working PWX, you know, he's,
2: he, he's someone that if he comes along five years later, he gets signed in one of these signing frenzies that the right. American companies get on. Cause he's, He's too good to not really have sustainable work. I mean, the fact that Evolve isn't using him and Ring of Honor is not using him and, you know, he's not signed by a major company. I think that's a shame.
1: It's just wild. Like, he's one of those people that you think would be having, like, this match because he's, like, one of those guys in the Southern Indies that gets talked about all the time, you know, and it just never really happened, and it's kind of wild.
2: Mike, the next match I rewatched and I was glad to. It was Davey Richards defeating Chris Hero in 2904 in a match that put every single thing on the U.S. indie scene today to shame. There is nothing as good as Davey versus Hero on the U.S. Indies today. Nothing is even close Oh, my God, Mike, this match was so good. There was a four-corner survival afterwards that I skipped, but it was El Generico, Homicide, Kenny King, and Mark Briscoe. And then the main event I watched as well, 25 minutes, Roderick Strong defends his ROH world title against Jay Briscoe, where Jay gets busted open hard way and bleeds all over the place. He bleeds like it's the age of the fall angle, but he wrestled another 15 minutes against Roderick Strong. This show, I don't know if it's on the ROH streaming service. If it is, go watch. Uh, I'm assuming Daniel's versus Claudio is good, but Davey versus Hero and Roderick Strong versus Jay Briscoe, well worth your time. Yeah,
1: like, and this was right before they really started to push Jay Briscoe as a singles wrestler. Like, that's something that really started kind of in 2012. Yes. So, so like, this was like one of his first like breakout singles matches. I th- I remember, or I seem to remember.
2: From there we go to another Ring of Honor show. This one, the same weekend as the DG USA Triple Shop, but this was on the West Coast. This was ROH SoCal Showdown 2, which had the Bravanos defeating Caleb Conley and Cedric Alexander, Jay Briscoe defeating Colt Cabana, the All Night Express defeating the Cutler Brothers, and I believe their only ROH appearance. Match 4, Davey Richards defeats TJ Perkins in a Gate USA what could have been offer <laughs> match. So disappointing because one of the things about the the Davey match against Hero was like, wow, could you imagine if Davey was wrestling Chuck Taylor? And I would love to see Davey versus Chuck Taylor, but Davey versus Gargano. And now you've got Davey versus Ricochet in the mix, possibly like there's so much what if. Had Davy not left, and then the rest of the show just quickly. Uh, Daniels defended the ROH TV title against Mark Briscoe. Charlie Haas and Shelton Benjamin were back on these shows. They defeated the Kings of Wrestling, and the main event, Roderick Strong defeated El Generico in 22 minutes. So, fun looking uh, string of shows from Ring of Honor in 2011.
1: Yeah, just like looking at this. This was at the Hilton in at the airport. Was this part of like a Russell Union or like one of the 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 set of shows that they would be doing like wrestling reunions out on the west coast and i know dg USA got affiliated with them a little bit but pwg and ring of honor were really kind of in thick with that because i'm like looking at these people like cedric alexander basically that opening match i mean those are is the high
2: spots crew yes yeah
1: high spots crew <laughs> and then like look at the rest of this and it's like this is not other than like obvious things not too dissimilar to uh, pwg shows like four years previous.
2: Well, Mike, it's funny you say that, because PWG ran the next night as their Kurt Russell Reunion yep. 2, there the reunion go. egg. There so, we
1: go. This was the Wrestle reunion, reunion show, so I was Yes, all right.
2: which, you know, 2010, 2011, Ring of Honor is a part of. 2012, Dragon Gate USA replaces Ring of Honor, so we'll talk about that show in a few weeks. But the PWG show, a, a very Wrestle Reunion-y show, uh, Brandon Gaston, Candice LeRae, Cedric Alexander, and Willie Mack defeat Caleb Conley, Jake Manning, ODB and Peter Avalon in the opener. Uh, There's a Lucha offer match with uh, Mr. Aguila and Ray Bucanero in match number two, Joey Ryan defeating Shane Helms in match three. That sounded awful before the allegations. Now it's just especially evil. Uh, match four though, Loki defeats Davey Richards in a match that I remember loving the first time I saw it. So another like, uh, if only Davey was still around because he was really doing some good work at this point. Jake Roberts wrestled his retirement match against Sin Bodie, a Legends Battle Royal featuring Shane Douglas, Terry Funk, uh, Chavo Guerrero Sr., ultimately won by Rowdy Roddy Piper, Chris Hero versus Kevin Steen, and another really, really fun match. Uh, a four-way tag with the Rockness Monsters defeating the Cutlers, the Fightin' Taylor boys of Brian Cage Taylor and Brian Taylor, and the Young Bucks, and the main event, PWG World Title Claudio Castagnoli defense against el generico in a brilliant professional wrestling match mike do you remember the show at all i remember
1: like hearing that this legends battle royal was an absolute mess it is
2: a disaster of epic proportions
1: yeah like this is a show that was going on forever and then this battle royal is 35 minutes long and
2: it's it's a long battle royal that I can only imagine how long the entrances took because it's guys that are legitimately in their 60s and 70s at this point.
1: They were guys that couldn't move, and then they wrestled a super long battle royal. Yeah, uh, uh, Mando had to uh, be—yeah, no, Mando Guerrero would have just entered his 40th year of wrestling
2: oh my goodness vampiro not a legend but in the legends battle royal good for him for sticking on there i mean well, him and Shane helms are <laughs>
1: yeah. probably the most mobile people in that match and that's all things being said about oh savio vega savio vega
2: yeah vega can still go vega could have worked the dragon at usa show and would have been fine
1: yeah no th- that would have been
2: well mike with that in mind we have gotten a context for the us indie landscape at the time it is time we unite philly for united
1: philly mike are you ready to break down this show absolutely so as we said starting off the show this was on the 29th the same day as kurt russell union to the reuniting we opened up in a much emptier 2300 arena john moxley and yamato are hanging the ring and moxley basically filled in everyone i don't know how many people uh would have had a crossover of watching the New York show on pay-per-view and then watching this one, but he made sure everyone had heard the news that, that Kam- Kamikaze USA was three and in New York city. Yamato's the new open, the dream gate champion he calls out homicide. A fan hits the ring to absolute silence. And Lenny Leonard and Chikarson are trying to kind of keep everyone a little bit like engaged to it on stream, but it was so obvious that this was dead in the arena and then quickly, and thank God, Dress for Excellence Pyramid, which which will kind of kind of end up being like how we would see so much Kamikaze, guys. We're about to, you're about to hear Dress for Excellence period Pyramid a whole ton for the next year of DGSA shows, and that ha- that led us to Yamato versus Brody Lee in a non-title matchup. Brody Lee suffers his first pinfall in a Dragon Gate related ring in just under 9 minutes, 8 minutes, 55 seconds, as he's choked out in the Dojima sleeper.
2: So the opening angle with the air quotes fan running in and attacking, and attacking Moxley was not worse than the Homicide versus Rich Swann match, but it is the worst angle by far that Gabe has done. And for Gabe to do this in the arena, which is the most jaded, and, you know, we've seen this before fan base ever. Oh, my God. I mean, it's a, it's a bad angle to begin with, but to do it in front of this audience just felt shockingly tone deaf to me because, of course, they wouldn't care. Nobody's attacking John Moxley. What's the point of that? It is one of those things where it just got to show off to such a, a bad start. And luckily, you were able to throw Brody Lee in the ring with Yamato, and things quickly got better. As watching this match, I thought, my God, Brody Lee should be the Open the Freedom Gate champion. He's that good. Um, But God, I hated that opening angle. It was just such a a waste of a Moxley promo, such a bad way to start off the show. But then, like I said, you had Lee and Yamato get in there and they tore it up in what I thought was an outstanding opening match.
1: Yeah, no, that opening segment was awkward after the fan hit the ring. The match was interesting. I ended up really liking it. I know I watched the show at the time, but... It's interesting how this match would happen, especially with one Brody Brody Lee being built up in a fashion that he always wanted to take on someone from Dragon Gate Japan. And finally, after the last few weeks, finally gets his hands on one and gets his hands on the Freedom Gate champion and takes about 80% of this match, I would say. I would say so. 80% of this match until he uh, gets uh, Yamato kicks out of the truck stop in the big boot. The crowd really gets into these kickouts. It's an interesting situation on this show, and it's going to become more apparent as we go along here. They're trying to move Kamikaze USA to tweeners, and it definitely like, kind of felt like that they were treating it in that fashion because Yamato is still incredibly over. And Then after like those two truck stops, he tries to go up. Uh, Yamato puts him up for a uh, brain buster and then locks in the sleeper hold. It was like a very interesting match, and it's just he built up Brody Lee for so long. He was so protected. He was someone that you could say, like, this should have been a Freedom Gate title match, as you said. No, this is the opening match, and he loses in nine minutes after taking 85 to 90% of the match. I like the match itself. This is a match where I look at this match, and I'm like, why did you uh, book this match? Like, like, why did you set Brody Lee to lose here? Because these guys had great chemistry. This should have been a main event match. It should not have been nine minutes and been, like, an opener. So that, that was my big takeaway from it. I went three and a half stars. I really liked it.
2: I think, unfortunately, that is just the way Brody Lee's career has gone, where he's undervalued and underappreciated right. in every company he's ever been in. Because just the way he's been presented on these shows, to me, he should be the American that everybody is really behind. And yes, like, Ricochet is Dragon It makes sense that you would want to move in his direction. And I think Gargano, Taylor, and Swan— uh, are supremely talented even at this point in their career, but Brody Lee is the one that really feels like a star. And I think it, it's not that I, I don't know this match just felt mismanaged because in this match they were able to have a great match where Brody Lee kicks Yamato's head into another planet on one of those big boots, and then Monsters. as you mentioned, which I was going to bring up, what you mentioned, this was the the foundational layer of changing the kamikaze perception and more importantly, turning blood warriors heel, which they needed to do. Because one thing that I noticed on this, on these shows is that uh, it's like Shima specifically up until the turn, which happens later on in the show, but he's not super committed to working heel yet. And it's weird because they were introduced as a heel group in Japan.
1: Well, they were and they weren't in Japan. That's the weird thing. So go ahead. Because team Doi, explicitly were the heel unit and they had this big reveal here but they weren't like they were heels like like whenever doi was involved he was naturally heel gamma kz sugawara and all of this and they did act heel but they didn't really submit the heel turn for another three months when uh basically when when dragon Kid gets kicked out and hulk and akira join the unit that's when like the golden age heel run starts so like it's like a weird thing. Like this is also a time where on the shows, Naruki Doi is obsessed with mooning people. <laughs> do you remember that? Sadly,
2: oh, sadly, it should bring that back. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, uh, yeah, but, yes, but but, but, but you know, you're you're right because one of the things that stuck out to me watching the New York show was you know, Shima would do his his ooh motion. And I was waiting for him to give the up yours to follow, which he would later spam like it was a WWE 2K video game. He just couldn't stop doing it. But he's still doing the Warriors pose. I was like, well, that's weird because Blood Warriors was a heel unit. But you're right. It was a bit of a slower transition there. But this match really set the table for what was to come in a really intricate way that I think Yamato and Brody Lee perfectly executed. Three and a half for me as well.
1: Yeah, it just was a, I mean, like, you, you talked about Brody Lee should have been like the star. You have Yamato, who, being generous, is probably five seven. I mean, he's not a tall guy, and you have Brody Lee, who's six foot three, and you can see like the difference there and the kind of match that like they're probably and this might just be me fan booking my head. There probably could have been like this huge Brody Lee face run after the end of Blood Warriors. Where like he like takes out everyone in Blood Warriors, and becomes Freedom Gate champion, and that could have been a real interesting parallel universe, but that is not to happen there.
2: Unfortunately, not.
1: Then John Moxley grabbed the microphone and had another promo, and he starts this off with of a slur. It wasn't cool in 2011. It's certainly not cool now. He says a slur, but he says he runs with the toughest guys. More people come out for Moxley, and it just was a very awkward and just distasteful second.
2: It was so weird, because I messaged you when I watched. I was like, hey, I think Mox said something, but I'm afraid to rewind to find out for sure. Can you please confirm for me, basically? Um, It it was just, it was so strange. Um, And then another fan ran in and attacked him, and it was such an awful angle that I was you know, uh, d- angry because of the weird verbiage Mox used and then angry because it was an awful angle. And it was after such a great match, it was a frustrating way to kind of transition into the next phase of the show.
1: Yeah. It's just, God, it was terrible. It like, there's no like hiding it. This is a terrible moment on the show. And one that the, I think is no place for that kind of thing happening to begin with. And then we had Jigsaw doing a backstage promo for the fray and boy, there's a lot of things like about Jigsaw. Him doing a promo is not it. <laughs> no, sir. I have nothing good to say about this. And then we, ha- then we led right into Rich Swan with Chuck Taylor and Johnny Gargano dressed in dress shirts and ties with her gear on. This kind of became a thing that, th- that I guess Ronin decided to do coming out of BB Kings where they were in shirts and ties. I don't, Remember why they did this, but they did. I Defeating- really liked it. I will say that I really liked the shirt and tie
2: with the wrestling tights look. I
1: thought it was super funny. Made you remember of like 2008 Claudio Castagnoli, didn't it? Ah, yes, indeed. Well, they weren't very European. They were very weird, Mid- very Midwest, very Midwest, <laughs> very Midwest. I mean, Chucked, yeah, no, no, like that, that's the Kentucky Ohio connection right there. Well, Rich Swan defeated Jimmy Jacobs in nine minutes and seventeen seconds with his standing four fifty splash, and you know, like this is a match where rich one in this promotion is like so young and is still developing but like this kind of match like i thought it was decent i gave it three flat it just was a very kind of weird match jimmy jacobs did a hulk up partway through the match that just felt completely out of place in this promotion even given his history and it just kind of came away of going like it was a big surprising upset ronin's being pushed to the ceiling here they're by the end of the night they are the big face unit but at this point i'm just like oh this happened, yeah, and then, like, there's, like, a weird faceplant in this match. This was, like, insane, like, and swan stuff, in my opinion, and then the match itself just kind of happened.
2: Was Rich Swan wearing someone else's boots in this match? That's my biggest takeaway is he was wearing these white boots that did not look like they were his.
1: No, because he's someone that, that basically kept the same ring gear other than, like, him having Junction 3 ring gear and, like, the short period of Ronin ring gear his entire time.
2: Yeah, that that makes sense. I just don't remember him ever wearing white boots and they looked like they looked closer to something that Sammy Callahan would wear and I I was like, well, Swan had his boots in New York. Why would he not have them here? But it was weirdly distracting for me throughout a match that I as well gave 3 stars. There's a moment here where Swan does the Hurricane Rana from he's standing on the ring, uh Jacob's is standing on the second rope and Swan leaps up, hits the Huracurana there, and then goes into a standing shooting star press. That got a huge reaction, which was really funny to me because I think that's in every US Indy match in 2020, which is, (laughs) it's not a bad thing. It's just, you know, the way the style evolves. But in 2011, that was like, oh my God, look at the athleticism. Other than that, yeah, no, it was, it felt like they were going for a match that was too big for the spot on the card, which is odd considering that Jimmy Jacobs, I don't think, was ever that kind of guy but yeah definitely had like a super worker thing going on here that didn't entirely work uh they pushed this match as in the newswire they pushed this match as jacobs versus swan for the first time ever jacobs wanted one of the breakout stars and now he gets this match as he tries to climb into the freedom gate contention they ended up losing this match so jimmy jacobs on a bit of a losing streak to start this weekend oh two
1: yeah it's going to be an interesting next few shows for jimmy jacobs so he's zero to this weekend then chuck grab the promo uh grab the microphone he really wants to go to japan that that's all ronan wants to do we got
2: it they want to go i want to go to japan too you don't hear me mention it on this show (laughs) every segment i would like to go to japan i would like to get in trouble in Roppongi with Mike Spears and Larry Dallas. I think that would be fun, but you don't hear me mentioning it every segment of the show, the way Ronan does.
1: Oh, you see, I'd be in golden guy hanging out with Don Fuji talking about trains while you, while you two go do your thing. I'm just going to have, do
2: you you know the picture on Twitter that circulates every once in a while of the proposed high-speed railway system that like, Uh, encompass the entire continental United States. Oh oh, yeah. I
1: think that uh, every time I go visit family thinking I could be there in four hours on a train and not in a death machine.
2: That picture makes me physically hurt. Like I just, I just want that so badly because I, I love trains too. It's more, it's more the Mike Spears brand to be all about trains and to hang out with Don Fuji. I get it, okay? But I love trains, too, okay? I You hate planes. I hate cars. I hate driving. It's my least favorite thing to do. I dated a girl for two years, because I loved her, but also because she would drive me anywhere I wanted, and it was such a phenomenal part of our relationship. <laughs> I later found out she wasn't thrilled on that, but at the time, I was loving it. I was like, she'll drive me to any record store I want to go to. This is all I've ever wanted from a girlfriend. I hate cars, and if I could just take the train everywhere, whether I'm in Chicago, or I'm in Indiana, or I'm in New Mexico, it doesn't matter. I just want to be able to take trains everywhere I go.
1: I did not see K-Slow train enthusiasts as of the time recording on June 30th. Big train guy! Nobody knows
2: it, okay? I keep it close to the vest. I love trains.
1: Right now I'm imagining that you have a hidden like model train set that you make sure everyone's <laughs> out of the house. You 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 go down to the basement or in the attic, you, you put on your conductor's hat, you plug <laughs> it in. And then for the next like 20 minutes, you, you're just humming.
2: That's how it was when I got back into professional wrestling, because like, I liked it as a kid, but I liked it at a really young age. I started watching it. In two thousand six, I was born in nineteen ninety nine so I was seven years old when I started watching wrestling and I watched it religiously up until Benoit died and then i I was a big Benoit fan and, and you know on top of being a kid and just having changing phases, but that was like the like okay, not for me anymore and then, in two thousand and twelve, I was like man i miss I miss wrestling, let me get back into this but w- what would happen was I would turn on Monday Night Raw. But it would be after everyone in my family had already gone to bed, and then I would be afraid that they would hear the TV. And at this point, I'm 13 years old. There's no excuse to do this. But I would watch Raw on, like, level three volume on the TV, like, just so I could hear Michael Cole's voice, but not a, not loud enough to know what he was saying. But I just, like... I was so secretive about wrestling, I didn't want anybody to know that I was back into it. And then I don't remember how I, you know, re came out as a wrestling fan, uh, but it eventually happened and then now I'm here talking to you about trying to get USA. I don't know what went wrong, but we're here now.
1: I mean the the, the this change has gone to some places. I <laughs> I, I I see I, I I see how the train enthusiast case low came apart. Uh Roden baby's starting to get over. Uh, this is yes. something I'll be tracking. I'm willing to bet that by the time we get to Atlanta it's going to be obnoxiously over. Uh, we do go backstage. World One's is there. Pack is cutting a promo. They're the best bar none. Maybe Pac should take out his mouthpiece when he's cutting a promo. It just none of the backstage <laughs> stuff on this show really was anything. It was good. all it was all swings and misses. It was all swings and misses. Then we had the the we had the six-way free uh, freestyle match where we had Simi Callahan, the debuting A.R. Fox, Cheech Hernandez, Frightmare, the returning Jigsaw, and Rex Reed together. Uh, Simi Callahan got the win in 9 minutes and 10 seconds against A.R. Fox with a sliding forearm. I forgot they used to do something that Gabe would start doing where he'd black out the arena and they would have the same music for the freestyle start playing and the lights would come up and everyone would be in the ring. And I always thought that was a really weird choice to do.
2: It's so dumb. It's doing stuff for the sake of doing stuff. It adds no value to these matches. But I think in these multi-man matches, and I've never booked a wrestling show. I would like to, but I never have. But I think your goal should be in these five-way, six-way, seven-way phrase, freestyle, scrambles, whatever you want to call them. There's a lot of bodies in the ring. There's a lot of stuff happening. I think you want to be able to really spotlight one guy. And at the end of the match... It should be that was the guy that shined in this match. Sure. And in this match, it was A.R. Fox, who, for me, just completely, completely stole the show. I mean, yes, he did his leg drop bump where he tries to guillotine leg drop somebody on the apron. The guy rolls out of the way and A.R. Fox just destroys his lower half on the ring apron, which is my favorite spot ever. I think it's only the only thing better than that is when Fox does that, lands on the apron, and the Young Bucks super kick him oh, immediately God. afterwards, which yeah. I've seen them do, and it is the greatest thing ever. Um, but there's a big spot, like like the finish of this match, Callahan. Forearm smashes Fox into oblivion, gets the pin there. But the last minute of this match is dedicated to Callahan and Fox one-on-one. I think that's super smart. It gave Callahan uh, a better sense of, I guess, importance because he's clearly now someone that they're getting behind and will continue to get behind as they go along. And then Fox is the new guy who, uh, from here on out, is largely associated with the Gabe Sapolsky brand of wrestling – with the exception of the year and a half where he was gone due to a a payment dispute. But Fox from here until the last evolve show is someone that has continued to work for Gabe throughout. And this is the start of his career. And I thought he was excellent in this match. I will also say just real quickly, Rex Reed would not get booked on my shows for the way he looks. He had a shindy yarder, uh, I, if he was in the backyard wrestling, I would close my blinds to steal a third Joe Lanza phrase. Not a fan of Rex Reed's look, and then I didn't think he was that good in the match.
1: Yeah, and I actually like try to look up about a little bit about Rex Reed. He had to have been like someone who drove up for the tryout and ended up like, if he is like one of the best people in the tryout, then I fear for the tryout. He's like a Texas, New Mexico guy that looked terrible. He did wrestle in my local Shendi, by the way, which makes me kind of makes me laugh a little bit but yeah no he was garbage uh Frightmare, for someone who like i remember like being really into at the time did not hold up very well at all jigsaw was solid as always but yeah this was the ar fox show and this match was plotting and we talked about how great that that four-way cell was in philadelphia the last year and now we're to a point where it's like okay when they started doing dives and became about two people this was decent and that was like my only real big takeaway from that
2: real quick and it's not to put him down because I, it's not, it's. I'm not being mean spirited when I say this. I'm glad you said that thing about Frightmare though, because I was really underwhelmed by him in this match. And Frightmare has always been one of those guys that the uh, Chikara fans, the hardcore Chikara fans, are like, man, gotta book Frightmare. Frightmare's, Frightmare's one of the best guys. He's just stuck in Chikara. I kind of thought he looked like shit in this
1: match, quite honestly. I was not impressed by him at all. Okay, so we're on the same page there. It's, it's something that like one of the more interesting things for me about this is. And he still is someone that okay. He was a three-year vet at this time, but like seeing people and what how I remember them as and how they are in retrospect kind of came up empty here. And you know it was something that I was like oh wow he did felt kind of outclassed here. And it was one of those things I was like ah oh, maybe reassessing this kind of wrestling is is important to me to do that. So I was kind of glad to be like I, I'm not dragging him. It just was something that like I was all about him and then just like oh okay. Yeah, so we had that. We had another backstage promo. Probably the best backstage promo they had the entire time because it's Ricochet and Naruki Doi. Ricochet says that he's the best high flyer and that Doi carried World 1 and Doi Yoshi. And Doi is excited and ready. I think he's really happy that that, uh, Ricochet was on his team and was so willing to put down Masato Yoshino.
2: Yeah, actually a very fun promo because uh, Doi... Uh, more than any other Japanese talent, with the exception of Shima, Doi has charisma that just translates to American audience as well. And Ricochet, it's not that the promo was super compelling, but the points he had to make were very interesting.
1: Yeah, this was a 30-second promo, and you got all their motivation here, which is something that you can't say about a lot of stuff backstage. Then we had uh, Be Naked start playing as Akira Tozawa, is accompanied down the ring by John Moxley. This is John Moxley's probably worst Day on microphone in dg usa i think it's fair to say
2: and yeah yeah no i go ahead yes i agree i i thought i might have been alone on this
1: he said like he said like tozawa tozawa that's my moxley voice <laughs> we'll it. say it say it and then tozawa just said come on baby and then he grabs back the microphone and says he's going to take out hulk and homicide just weird weird like just what the hell like that this is a match where Akira Tozawa becomes a comes like the full on just weirdo that he is. He faced off against uh, Austin Aries. Austin Aries came out with a microphone, set, called John Moxley ugly, and then brought out Rebby Sky. Uh, Tozawa and Moxley had a great dynamic. I remember us talking about this in the last episode. Like, the two of them worked together in a really fun manner, and this match ended up being a really like fun match. And one of those matches where like one of the big goals this weekend was getting Akira Tozawa over to the next level, as he would only have four more months on his excursion. And this was like the next step up and we got to see the capture German suplex that became his finisher for the remainder of his stint in DG. So a few things
2: last week, I was in no mood to talk about Austin Aries. Uh, his allegations broke just before we started recording and it just upset me. I can detail him more fairly this week. And what I will say has no, I guess the allegations have no impact on what I will say, which is first of all, that he talks way too much in this promotion. He needed way less mic time. And also this is one of the single, I guess, second tier because Tozawa has been in some real match of the year contender match of the, you know, match of the years, let alone contenders. This is a brilliant singular performance by Akira Tozawa. And Austin Aries was good, but Austin Aries was clearly second fiddle to the driving force that was the Chris Hero beaten, the Kevin Steen destroyed, and the John Moxley led Akira Tozawa that not only got his finishing move over by pinning Austin Aries, which I had forgot that that was the finish and I was blown away when I saw it. He hung with Aries for 20 minutes, got himself over, and at the same time, teased a direction that he and Moxley were going to have chemistry issues in the future. Tozawa got over two stories with one match and was utterly brilliant in a match that went too long, that had spots that weren't super clean, but was ultimately worth my time and a match that I would call very, very good. And it is entirely on the way or on the shoulders of Akira Tozawa.
1: Yeah, no, you could have put anyone in the ring against Akira Tozawa in this position and the same match would have happened maybe even better, I would say. Like, it just, he was there in that match. Uh, Tozawa, really, like, I feel like I say this a lot of the shows, each time, like, you're seeing, like, and this is the the things that, like, I love is seeing, like, wrestlers kind of discover themselves and develop and you see extra little quirks and uh, responding to the crowd. And really from th- Toronto on, we've seen someone who was, out of being a rookie for four years at that point, but really discover himself. And this was a match where I feel like I say this each time case, and you could kinda like point this out, say, Mike, you say this all the time, but Akira Tozawa came into his own in this match. And it's remarkable. I went three and three quarters, and that's three and three quarters solely to Akira Tozawa because of how spectacular he was here. And one of those matches that like we start seeing him and John Moxley, and we'll get more into there's there are troubles that start up on this weekend.
2: What star rating did you give the uh, freestyle match? Two and three quarters. Okay. So I gave that three and a quarter, but on that we are right on the money equal with our star ratings. Cause I went three and three quarters for this as well. I will say Austin Aries and it USA reminds me a lot of Cody's evolve in PWG run where Whether he thinks it or not, I do not know. But Aries here and Cody in those promotions presented themselves in a way where they almost felt too big or too important for the stage they were working on. Like they were upstaging so many of the other wrestlers on the show. And, you know, despite how he is a human, you know, like I said, when he debuted, Austin Aries is one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. I think, other than Bryan Danielson, he's the best Ring of Honor wrestler there ever was. And Dragon Gate USA, though, it's just, it's just not the same. It's just not clicking. And I'm curious to see if that changes as his run goes along. I'm really not sure, but I do know that Akira Tozawa is just a brilliant professional wrestler. I love him so much.
1: Yeah, yeah, like this is something I, I think you, you're, you're pretty right about. This. It's not just that they feel like out of place. It feels like they're perfunctory there. And they're going through the motions. Whereas, like, I know Cody was like, I needed to prove myself. And it's like, dude, this isn't your place. With all scenarios, it's like, why are you here? Yeah, so. I would agree with that. All right. Post match, we had another backstage promo. And probably the weirdest one Jimmy Jacobs is not happy being 0 2. Life is not a fairy tale. And he's looking forward to tomorrow. Very sad, Jimmy Jacobs. And things would not be getting much better for Jimmy Jacobs in the remainder of his time in DGUSA. USA.
2: I feel like I've seen Jimmy cut this promo a hundred times. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's whatever. I will say after this, and I don't know if you have this in your notes or not. I noticed this on the New York show. And then I took note of it here and and wanted to be sure to mention it, that they are now playing like minute long advertisements for the WWN live streaming service, the home of Drangit USA evolve and FIP iPay per views Those ads were introduced
1: on these shows. I did not notice it on the New York show. I did take note of it here. So I don't remember when he announced it. I don't think that he's this might have been something that comes out of the news wires coming after this
2: yeah i'm I'm assuming uh, because we're
1: watching the DVD cut of this, so I'm assuming they were implemented on the DVDs and probably not on the GoFight live stream. makes sense. And then we had John Moxley versus BB Hulk. I did not know this was a no disqualification match. They didn't really kind of announce it as that but I'm seeing this now as no disqualification match. And I say, huh, that makes sense. Uh, BB Hulk won with the first flash in seven minutes and 59 seconds after Akira Tozawa kind of like interfered and did nothing, but he stepped into the ring and you know, for like an eight minute brawl, BB Hulk is a better brawler than people give credit for. And I've always kind of thought this. And I thought that these two guys had a fun eight minute brawl.
2: Yeah, that's exactly it. It's a really fun match. It's believe it or not, the first singles match that Moxley has had against a Drengate USA guy. Since he debuted in the company in November of 2009, all of his stuff has been either against Americans, he wrestled Masada Yoshino in the Chikara versus Kamikaze Eight Man at the Anniversary Show, and then had the tag match where it was Mox and Tozawa against Hulk and Homicide on the end of 2010 double shot. But this is his first singles match against the Drangate guy. He's someone that's spoken publicly, he's not crazy about the Drangate style. I just, you know, it's just too fast for him, doesn't think there's enough selling, whatever, whatever. He and Hulk worked really well together. It's not a great match by any means, but like Mike mentioned, Hulk brought a ton of fire. He was able to brawl with Moxley. He came out swinging, and I thought it was an all right little match.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it was like eight minutes, and Hulk getting the win is kind of like a notable thing, seeing how he lost the title the night before. And it's just, you come out of this match, you're like, you know what? All right, eight minutes. And after like having some kind of matches that were there or were underwhelming having a match like this. You're like, okay, I'm all right with this. Like this was, that was kind of my big takeaway. Uh, Moxley starts shouting, no, just very loud and very audibly. And then we had a Simi Callahan promo where he says like, he's someone to, uh, he, he's someone to be scared of. He wants respect. And then he did, he said that he took out five men this time. And, and next time he's going bigger. And that led into our first of the United gate tournament matches do you have any thoughts on that semi promo uh it sucked yeah it's it's, it's a semi promo he's a terrible promo and it, nothing ever changes however this next match was a very weird match but it was a match that came around at the end and ended up really liking it it was uh chuck taylor and johnny gargano with rich swan representing ronin against ck1 of shima and dragon kid representing blood warriors uh uh, Gargano and Taylor won when Gargano debuted. The Gargano escape and tapped out Shima. This would move uh, Ronin to four points on the weekend. They are undefeated as they were doing the traditional round robin style scoring here and eliminates Blood Warrior CK1 team from title contention. It was at 19 minutes and 30 seconds.
2: So there's a lot of moves in this match. If you're someone that doesn't love the Dragon Gate House style, this is not the match for you because there's just a lot of stuff happening. And I think it's different from the main event, which we'll talk about in just a second. This was a, just a lot of moves that felt very linear. And I enjoy that. I, I love this match, but I can see where people have a disconnect to a match like this. That being said, The stuff that sticks out to me here is the Shima-Gargano interactions, because you've got to remember, they wrestled each other in the opening match the last time they were in this building. Since then, Gargano's like a different human. He looks better. He's a better wrestler. And he and Shima have really, really good chemistry with one another. I really liked seeing them go at it, and like I will continue to say until the end of this series probably— Chuck Taylor super underrated, and Chuck Taylor looks really good wrestling against these Dragon Gate guys. And it's a shame that the Dragon Gate crew didn't seem to mesh well with Chuck Taylor. It's a shame that much like Brody Lee, Gabe Sapolsky continuously undervalued Chuck Taylor because I think he's really, really good. And it's a shame that this weekend, with the exception of one or two matches here and there, it feels like this weekend and then the WrestleMania weekend that's about to occur is probably the peak of Chuck Taylor in this company, which just seems wrong to me.
1: Yeah, and this is a match that was very goofy to begin with. You could see like the awkwardness about Blood Warriors not fully being healed here. There was a lot of dancing, and then Shima and Dragon Kid started dancing. And then when it got to the, the closing stretch, I thought this kicked into the gear it needed to be. The fact that Shima tap- got tapped out to Johnny Gargano's debuting Submission, the the move that would kind of become his move throughout the remainder of the promotion, become actually a big plot point in the promotion, the Gargano escape, his version of the Border City stretch. I remember him specifically saying, I view Alex Shelley as an older brother, and I'm doing this move because of our relationship, which I thought was always really cool. I'm a big Alex Shelley guy, but... It's just like—is that your T-shirt? I'm an Alex Shelley guy. How can't you be an Alex Shelley guy? He loves. I Ma- like him too. He loves McCluskey. His favorite video game is my favorite video game. I feel like Alex Shelley and I would be good friends.
2: Uh, that is a safe bet.
1: <laughs> but like this match, this match ruled. Like it, it's such a shame how both. Uh, I, I'm willing to say it because Chuck Taylor says it. Shima hates Chuck Taylor, and Gabe did not know how to use Chuck Taylor to his benefits. Cause he was like him and Dragon Kid were phenomenal in this. And he was great against Naruki Toy and uh, Ricochet on the previous night. He just, he fits in there. He's just like aesthetically and his move style did not go for what Dragon Gate wanted at that time. But he was so good in this. And Gargano, like further, like each each show is becoming more and more of a complete product. He does have the crazy Sonic the Hedgehog hair, which I always forget about until I watch these shows. I'm like, oh yeah, Jai Gargano had some wild hair before he started losing it. But I want four stars on this. I really enjoyed it
2: four and a quarter for me really liked it some big moves stuck out with me again the gargano shima stuff i just thought was excellent uh very good stuff and the angle that followed uh you can break it down i'll just say real quick thought it was a little awkward to start but once the turn happened i was completely on board with everything going on
1: yeah so the awkward part is that yet again hey case ronan wants to go to japan
2: i've heard ronan wants to go to japan have you heard Mike?
1: Yes, I have. And so has Shima, and Shima called them stupid. He called everyone chanting for them stupid, and this is when Blood Warrior Snap and this angle became awesome. Brody Lee grabbed the microphone and called everyone pieces of shit, which, kind of abrupt thing to happen, but it kind of worked, and then Shima... Yeah, well,
0: r-
2: real quick, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to cut you off here, but, but yeah. it, it was... It, and again, I mean, we've talked very openly about how we genuinely love Shima's mic work and how, like, Doi and Hulk and Yoshino have been really fun on the mic, even in their broken English i I don't know if it was the acoustics and the likely flawed way that It USA had set up their microphones for this show. I, there was something where I what Shima was saying was not connecting with the audience. Mm-hmm. And I think he was he was trying to turn on the crowd, but they weren't picking up on that. It's like they 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 couldn't understand him. And again, I don't know if that's just the language barrier and Shima's broken English, or if that was the microphone. But it was a veteran move by Brody Lee to step in and very loudly and very clearly call the crowd
1: "pieces of shit." It was it was a a very good move by Brody right there. I like to to pose a third scenario. I think, Go for it. I think that Shima, as we've seen through the first fourteen shows, is so he's he's someone that the crowd has always held in high esteem, and usually he is the most over japanese wrestler on these shows probably going to be hard for him to kind of cut a promo and turn on this crowd so again Brody lee stepping in there was the right move but yeah that's very fair so i think that happened and then chima said they can come to japan but they will be treated as young boys and we will treat you like how young boys are treated and then blood warriors just completely destroys them uh Brody lee lays everyone out Shima tells him to toss him out of the room as garbage, and Blood Warriors has officially turned where they would do the ooh, but then do a fake up and go up yours, which now, Blood Warriors are now full on heel in Dragon Gate USA. It would still be a little bit before Dragon Gate gets kicked out, and Blood Warriors are full on heel in Japan.
2: I don't know for sure, but I, just from what I've heard, I'm led to believe that this was not the original plan, Mm -hmm. and that Ronin's rapping entrance was so game changing the night before that some stuff was rewritten and maybe expedited or altered to some extent. Now I'm sure because blood warriors eventually goes full on heel in Japan that they would have done the same thing in drank it USA. But I, I would like to know if there was an alternative out there for the booking of Philadelphia, because I don't think this was entirely the original plan but I'm all for it because I really like the way the the way this angle came across.
1: Yeah, and it stayed true to everyone's character. like shima has been bugged by these guys pretty much from the jump that they and, bu-
2: and bugged by young boys
1: also yeah, <laughs> not yeah. his favorite. not <laughs> his favorite thing to this day. Uh, but it's very true to it and then like the idea that he would just eventually after all this, I mean these were guys three months ago, like Chuck Taylor was asked to join Warriors and turn him flatly down. So, like, this is not, like, a big character portrayal. This is not a cardinal sin. I think that this was, like, pulling an audible here, and it played off.
2: No, great angle. Not a cardinal sin by any means. Yeah,
1: and then we had the main event, which was the team of the Open the Dream Gate champion and the Open the Brave Gate champion, Masato Yoshino and Pac receptively, uh, representing World 1, defeating the Die Fly team of Naruki Doi and Ricochet in 19 minutes and 50 seconds, this would eliminate the second Blood Warriors team from the tournament and would make the next night in Union City, New Jersey, be a winner-take-all match between Ronin and World 1 when Masato Yoshino locked in the Soul Naciente on Ricochet in just under 20 minutes. And this was by far my match of the night and an exceptional piece of wrestling. Just absolutely insane stuff and and say to the point that uh i'm gonna I'll, I'll, I'll let you take this in a second but there's one thing i wanted to point out before we really get into this uh pack does a running springboard cancun tornado and lands on his feet after colliding into blood warriors and is walking away and you can see shima visibly in the background <laughs> just going what the fuck did i just see and, and that very much is this match to me a, a few things. First of all,
2: this match is on YouTube. Go watch it if you haven't seen it. We will link the the. We will put the link in the show description. Absolutely. This is essential viewing. If you have made it this far in the podcast and you have not seen this match, that needs to be rectified immediately. Where, where, where to begin? <laughs> I mean, oh my God! This is exactly what I want from professional wrestling, and I think it's worth even though it's a tag team match and the teams together have such brilliant chemistry, I think it's worth looking at all four guys. And I think Doi and Yoshino can be lumped as one pairing, which we'll talk about in just a second. But looking at Ricochet, we, we talked extensively in our last two episodes about his first tour of Japan. And then, you know, he comes back over in early January and does the blood warriors formation. Think about the Ricochet in this building. In July of 2010, in the four-way match, which I love that four-way match, I think, more than anybody besides Rob Naylor, okay? I (laughs) I love that match dearly. But think about the ricochet in that match to the confident and poised and charismatic ricochet that he may may, may have damn well believed that he was actually a better high flyer than Pac in this match— at the very least, he conveyed that to me, that he thought he was on the same level as someone that was on their way to becoming a Dragon Gate legend. Granted, Ricochet did that in his own right, but Pac was one step ahead of him. Oh my God, Ricochet was just something else in this match. And again, it is something that Mike and I probably haven't talked about on the show in a while, but it used to be one of our big talking points of there is not an American, or a foreigner rather, that has gone through the Dragon Gate system and not gotten better in seeing how quickly and how drastically ricochet has improved from him going over even look at the october shows ricochet goes over in december this is two months later and he looks like an entirely different wrestler am i off base on thinking that mike
1: No, no. I was actually hoping you were going to advance for a little bit, so look at how many matches exactly he had in that first tour for him to be what he was before or what he was after, because he had it here. Ricochet, you, you watch everything before this weekend, and you get a sense of who Ricochet could be, and there is a lot of what Ricochet could be when you watch him in 2009, 2010, 2008. But by the time that this match happens, he's Not completely there, but this is already the ricochet that you would say, like, oh, yeah, no, this is young ricochet. And you would watch this. You'd be like, nope, that's young ricochet. He is tremendous. He already – he's going through the physical transformation of him because the story always goes that he got to Japan. Pac was already aware of him. He was like, all right, we're going to go to the gym and completely changed away like his mindset at least to aesthetically where he wanted to be. And then over this, because I've vamped for myself a long enough time to look this up, case over the he only had 20 minute, 20 matches in Japan before this tour. 20 matches, basically five weeks that he went from raw and had tools, like you would call him like a toolsy prospect back in the day, like talking about prospecting baseball, he was toolsy, into almost a completed superstar at this point. And it's something that's so remarkable not only just his wrestling ability, but as you said, like his presence got there. And that's something that is that only really through repetition and confidence that's instilled with you and like a performance in Dragon Gate where he came in out of the gates and even like people in Japan at this time were like, we have not seen a guy of this level. And he was already here and then him like this really is like the true kickstart of his twenty eleven against Pac. And the, the, the other thing that gets him to the completed, like, actualized superstar that he became in Dragon Gate and then New Japan, it's remarkable. And this match is—the crazy thing about this match, case. he's not the star of this match. No, 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 but we're, we're, we'll, we'll get to him because, again,
2: Ricochet, if he works 25 matches in a row in Chikara— he's not at this level. If he works 25 matches in a row in PWG, he's not at this level. If he works 25 matches in a row in IWA Mid-South, he's dead. So we certainly don't want that, okay? This is a product of the Dragon system, and it's a product of working with Pac for an entire year, okay? This is the start of pretty much every episode from here on out. We will be talking about Pac specifically and his relationship with Ricochet. But before we talk about Pac in this match, real quick, the Doi and Yoshino interactions, I should note, felt very heated. And I, and I think, you know, it's, it's a crowd that was good, not great, certainly not the hottest Philly crowd they've had. But this is a building where Doi and Yoshino meant something to the crowd. Uh, you know, the, the November 2009 show where you have the Speed Muscle versus Shingo Dragon Kid match. I'm assuming most of the fans there were the uh, the fans here. And it just felt like the crowd knew that the Doi and Yoshino interactions were heated and meant something.
1: And then there was Pac. Mike, you take the floor first. Well, one thing about Speed Muscle is not just that they're heated. Each time that they got into the ring, the match kicked into another gear. Yes. It, it was like they added the fuel to the foul. But Pac in this match, holy shit. I talked about that one move that he did here. But the crispness and the execution here that. Maybe it was that in New York he had a smaller venue, so he wasn't gonna go flying here. But the things that he would do in this match have not been replicated in wrestling. In this match, Mike,
2: there's no one like him. There's just a, the, the more I watch him in this in this project, with still the memories of his Drangate run, which ended almost a year ago to the day that we're recording this. I think it'll be a year by the time this episode comes out. With that still lingering in the back of my mind. There's just no one like him. And God, uh, why is wrestling so hard where guys that are this talented don't get pushed on a mainstream level? I mean, how, uh, not to make this anti-WWE, but how the fuck do you not make this guy such a big deal? There's no one in the history of wrestling like this guy. He's flawless
1: in this match. He's singular. Like, there's no one else like Pac and... Over the next nine years to this day, which sadly, due to everything, we've not seen Pac wrestle anywhere in about four months.
2: Remember Death Triangle? That was gonna oh, be that was. I gonna fucking be the thing. love
1: Death Triangle. <laughs> That's
2: gonna be the thing.
1: Yeah. And it just got taken away from us. Oh, absolutely. It's just something that like you see this here, and it's and it's not just like him being a once in a time. High flyer because he is. I mean, have you ever seen anyone other than him land on his feet and just walk away from doing a springboard Cancun tornado? No, I've never seen anybody. No, I've never seen anybody do the move, let alone land on their feet. I mean, he did a six thirty that was more impressive than any six thirty that uh, either Ricochet or Jack Evans will do. And he pulls things together and he makes his moves look impactful. And not in a way where you have the Rob Van Dam, like, over-exaggerated sell the five-star Fog Splash. It looks like he lands it perfectly. Never hear of anyone really getting hurt by Pac's high-flying, by the way. Like, okay,
2: so I, I'm—yes, I, I, I'm so glad you mentioned this. I gotta cut you off there because it was my big point on Pac. is there is a heaviness to his dives that I've just never seen Anything like it before where, again, I've never heard of anybody getting hurt by one of Pac's moves. But when Pac dives on you, it looks just as vicious as a Kawada kick to the head or a backdrop driver on your neck or whatever legendary stiff move you want to mention that's the feeling I get watching Pac jump on these guys. And it's just, it's so refreshing compared to the plethora of house show dives that we see today. And then if you're not doing a house show dive, you're doing the same dives that, you know, everybody else has done before, with the exception of Alex Zane. But, and I like Alex, but Alex Zane is, you know, playing single A baseball compared to Pac in the major leagues with what he's able to do in the air and the way Pac is able to innovate because Pac is doing it flawlessly. He, he's doing it with perfection and he's doing it with just such a deadly accuracy on top of making the moves look so painful. Whereas someone like Alex Zane, I mean, he's doing stuff that I've never seen before, but it's visually impressive, but I don't know if it's, if it looks physically demanding, I don't believe that he's necessarily hurting his opponents all the time. Whereas with Pac, it is just a death sentence when he hits you with these moves, and I I just love him. I think he is one of the best wrestlers of this century, and uh, for so long, I think I underrated him because I think there is a bias to this high-flying style, even if it has largely dominated the mainstream professional wrestling landscape today. I think WWE does An embarrassingly poor version of it. And I think AEW does an all right job with it. But I I mean, even myself who loves this style, cares about this style, is a a bigger fan of this style than anything. I spent too long underrating Pac because he is just on another level of high flyers. And it is a beautiful thing to see. I'll shut up. I went four and three quarters.
1: Yep, four and three quarters. This is the best match they've had in this promotion since Danielson versus Shingo it will be hard for this match to be moved out of whatever our top lists are when we get to the end of this project case but it's just even for someone that I think packed it some of his best work when he came back to Dragon Gate and I think he was excellent I think he's been excellent in AEW too I think that his I feel like that his half hour Iron Man match with King Omega on Dynamite was one of the best TV matches they've ever had Yes. This is still what I think. And and for when I watched it, he was exemplary as the uh, Cruiserweight Champion in WWE. And the stuff in NXT as well.
2: He was the the best TV worker in the company while he was on TV. Right. And I said that at the time. I think I said this on the show last week too. I apologize if I'm repeating myself. But, uh, you know, it wasn't because of Pac, but essentially just the way the timeline worked. Once Pac got taken off of main programming and put on 205 live is when I stopped watching raw smackdown at all. And it's not because of pocket, just that's the way the timeline works up. But I saw all of his TV stuff and you know, him wrestling John Cena, and the United States Open Challenge stuff which man that was fun i missed that um he had just so many good matches against Kevin Owens on tv i think he had some Cesaro stuff in there or maybe i'm maybe i'm misremembering that but i feel like he had Cesaro and Rusev matches that were really fun it, his time on raw he was the best worker in the company and he wasn't having you know those peak level matches but that's cuz he wasn't given the opportunity but week in and week out he was the closest wwe had to a 2002 through 2005 version of Rey Mysterio, where you could give him eight minutes, and it was going to be a guaranteed entertaining eight minutes
1: of TV. And that all being said, i take this match over anything he did he has done in the United States or in the Western Hemisphere. Oh, God, yeah. I think this is, at this point, and we'll rewatch, and he's had some great matches after this, this is his best match in North America. And yeah. And it is Astounding! It's on YouTube. Highest recommendation at this point. I think I love this more than a, a Speed Muscle versus Shingo and, and Dragon Kid. And you know how high I was on that match. I think this is hmm. my number two match after. I think
2: hmm, after Shingo Danielson, this is your number two. Yeah. I think I, I like it more than the Milwaukee Six Man, which I also gave four and three quarters to. I. I think I like speed muscle versus Shingo and drank a little bit better. Cause that match feels like it's on the pathway to being a five star match. This feels like it cleared the hurdle of being four and a quarter and ended up at four and three quarters If that, or I'm sorry, four and a half and ended up being four and three quarters. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, this is not a match where I had a five star fear. Yes. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying there, but an exceptional way to end off a show that had its shaky moments, but I would say that they this is definitely now between that this and New York after the really weird last weekend they're getting back on to solid footing. This is two recommendable shows in a row. I would say I would wholeheartedly agree i've I've really enjoyed both of these and then after this match, Blood warriors continue their heel turn they beat down Pac and Yoshino, but then they get pack and you pack and Yoshino get them to the outside and they do the farewell promo and pack make sure because. He is such a nice person, and to my knowledge, he is a legitimately nice person. He shakes everyone's hand in the front row before going to the back. Masato Yoshino takes a bow and just leaves.
2: Yeah, no, good for Yoshino. His, his, match, did, his match did the talking. He doesn't need to say anything else.
1: Yeah, and that's it for uh, DGUSA United Philly. Uh, do you want to run down the card real quick for the finale of this triple shot?
2: Yeah, it's amazing how quickly uh, we're getting through this stuff. WrestleMania weekend 2011 is right around the corner. But before we go down south to Mike Spears territory, we have to go to Union City, New Jersey for a United finale, a show that features Brody Lee versus Rich Swan, Cheech versus AR Fox, BB Hulk versus Akira Tozawa, which is a match I am very excited to watch. A no-rules match between Homicide and John Moxley that I am not excited to watch. R- oh, we get real
1: two sides there.
2: Yes. Yeah, I don't know why that one got me as much as it did, but yes. Um, Well, and then. (laughs) Well, Rex Reed versus the debuting CM Punk's favorite wrestler, Pinky Sanchez. We then get an eight man tag match Blood Warrior, Shima Drag Kid, Nurgi Doi, and Ricochet against Austin Aries, Jimmy Jacobs, Sammy Callahan, and Yamato. What a team that is. Poor Yamato then, being
1: in that car ride. Oh,
2: my God. Oh, man. When you, oh, boy. That, <laughs> we'll, we'll spend time on that next week, because I have to imagine what the Aries Jacobs Callahan car is like, and more importantly, what kind of music they're listening to. Um, and then in the main event, open the United Gate titles. The first champions will be crowned. Will it be Masato Yoshino and Pac of World One, or Johnny Gargano and Chuck Taylor
1: of Ronin Baby? This is a I, show. This is oh my god! <laughs> yeah, this is absolutely a show. So something that other than like me doing like research and us doing research, I would really don't look at cards until we talk about them. Yeah, Tozawa versus Hulk is set is third from the bottom.
2: Yeah, I I know I I have not seen this show. I know that Hulk Tozawa match is super highly regarded, and then I have no idea for the rest of the show. This is one of those shows where. I, like there are shows that I haven't seen that I know what's on the card. I did not know what was on the show.
1: Yeah, and this is the last pay-per-view as far as I've been able to tell for them. They are now... This is the last one of their G-Funk deal. This is it. This is the final one. It would later be called United We Stand. So, yeah. This is going to be an interesting show to review next week. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I am as well. Mike, why don't you plug the stuff this week? All right, so... You can find both of us tweeting at Open VoiceGate. That we usually anything related to Dragon Gate, we're usually hot on. We keep track of things. If you're looking for a good source of Dragon Gate news and then all the stuff that we do involving the Dragon System, go check out Open VoiceGate. Case is at underscore in your case. I am at Fujihea uh, Throw us a like and a review on the Apple Podcast app if you get a chance. We appreciate it. And yeah. Boy, this is a show that kind of like the when watching it, I was like, I think that I really liked it and I was interested in your thoughts and it's kinda of interesting. Like, now we really don't talk about these shows. But like, welcome to the post show part of Open the Voice on Rhine Watch. Originally we were like talking back and forth with us. Now we kinda of both watch them we come together and unless there's something like, Mike, did I hear this right? Or case okay, it was this as dreadful as I thought this was. We don't collaborate here, but we kind of come to a consensus at the end of the day and it's kind of interesting
2: yeah no I, I i did not expect for you to like this show as much as you did i thought i would be the high man on most of the stuff and i it was nice to to be able to meet in the middle it was real fun
1: yeah 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 i i do think though that pretty much i, I will say this for our, for people who are looking to like get through the show quickly pretty much watch the opener and then skip everything until tozawa hits the ring and you'll be good
2: Typically a safe bet on any of these trying to get USA shows. <laughs> that's a good.
1: That's a good way of life, really. Just check out Tozawa. You'll be okay. That's how I live my life, and that's got me 34 years. So that's good for me. All right, guys. That's so, all I got, Mike. That's all I got too. Before I start whack, get, having other platitudes. So wish <laughs> upon our listeners are like, dear God, shut up. Anyways, for case I'm Mike, and we'll catch you next time on Open the Voice Gate, Rewind, and Rewatch.